Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. Wonderful special guest with us today. Her favorite bird is actually the ABA's Bird of the Year. We will talk about that. She is a journalist. She is the author of the brilliant book, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. Welcome, Becca McNeil. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It is so good to have you here. I was saying just before we we hit the record button that I knew you were a wonderful author, writer, journalist. I did not know you were a birder. Sometimes people have to kind of out themselves to me as birders. Yes. Yeah, it's um, it's funny for, we had been talking as well about how birding's kind of having a moment, but when I started birding, it wasn't. And it was totally like when I told friends I was doing it, they were like, so what are you going to do when you retire? <laughs> now that you've done retirement activities in your early 30s or whatever. And uh but I fell in love with it in my late 20s. I have just loved it, but I've kind of kept it quiet. Um not kept quiet on purpose, but I don't talk about it much mostly because the the feedback that I get was usually like okay, grandpa. <laughs> So what got you into birding, Becca? How did it begin for you? You're not retired yet. I'm not. I'm not. Um, which means I don't get to bird as often as I would like to in a big, like, go on trips or take the afternoon sort of way. Um, I started birding when I had left, right after I left a ministry job that had taken up kind of all of my time, all of my energy, and it was not in a tradition that encouraged a lot of curiosity. It was in a tradition that really valued certainty. And I decided to basically, it's almost as a way of kind of finding a redemptive pathway out of it. I thought, well, I'm going to start getting to know my city a little better and getting to know nature a little better, not through this lens that I've had for so long of how is this can make, can this make a good sermon illustration or who can I meet here that I can evangelize or um, how is this a threat to the church? I was like, I'm going to go in and finally let myself be as curious as I've always been without agenda. And so I signed up for the master naturalist class in our area. And the master naturalist program is amazing. Highly recommend it. Love it. And part of the master naturalist training was birds. And San Antonio has an amazing, is kind of a birding um, hub, but in a totally as usual. San Antonio is a super understated city. And so of course, no one knows that Mitchell Lake one of our reservoirs is the first big water stop as birds are coming up 
from through the funnel, through the migration funnel through Mexico and South Texas. And so it's the first still body of water that's big and accessible and they can land. And so during migration season, you can see anything you want to see. Pretty much any migratory bird is going to make these stops. So like our painted bunting season is amazing. We have osprey, we have all the hawks, we have scissor tails galore, we have all sorts of waterfowl. It's really, really fun. And so I had this introduction to birding that was, um, it's like going to Yosemite National Park as your introduction to the outdoors where you're like, whoa, yeah. Or like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> um, like I'm sitting in a blind and watching 15 painted buntings come and go. It was amazing. Um, and then I got into more of the survey work going on in the hill country part of Texas that where the tree population has changed a lot because of development and agriculture over the last couple hundred years. And so certain species are endangered now because their habitats are being destroyed. And there's certain, there's people doing good work to try to rehabilitate that. And so I started doing bird surveys and um, helping both Texas Parks and Wildlife and uh, actually participating as a volunteer there, but then observing what private landowners were doing as well. Mm. That's it. <laughs> the beginning of a long love affair with yes, feathered things. Exactly. Oh, now I want to go to that, that, what did you say? Mitchell Reserve? Mitchell Lake. It's, Mitchell it's, an, Lake. it's a formal Audubon, Audubon Center. Mm. It's, I recommend it to everyone and people are like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, no, once you go, it's an old reservoir. So there's these concrete walkways around through all the different tanks of water. Mm. So you get really up close. It's really fun. <laughs> Oh, I, one of the, one of the perhaps downsides to doing this podcast is every single guest, like my list is growing. I'm like, I need to go yeah. to British Columbia. I need to go to Ithaca, New York. I yeah. need to go to Decatur, Georgia, and I need to go to yeah. New Mexico. And my husband's like, okay, like we uh. you know, pace yourself. <laughs> um, what, what a wonderful entryway into birding, just this embarrassment of riches. I have yet to see a painted bunting in the wild. That is definitely on my my life, my life list, my desired life list. It's a great one. It's, um, I have a friend who has a painted bunting tattoo and she got to see, I think her first one in the wild. I think maybe her first one, I don't know about her first one, but got to see them in the wild here in the spring. And it was pretty special. Mm, aspirational <laughs> tattoo. You have to see yeah. one in the wild yeah, now if exactly. you have it on your body. Yeah. Oh, I love the that. Goal. And I know you do some writing on birding and the interplay between birding and mental health. And it sounds like it was part of this healing journey for you to step from a place of, you said very graciously, certainty, but I think that can also be translated kind of as, as lockdown or don't have any questions, yeah. don't have any ideas. I I think at their best, the, like you said, those traditions do lean on certainty as kind of a, a comfort and a, we can trust God, but at their worst, they do discourage questions. They discourage that curiosity. Tell me about the interplay between birding and healing for you, birding and mental health. Yeah. So I have um, more on my blog. I haven't done much writing formally, um, but personally, and reflectively have thought a lot about learning from nature, watching nature, trying to connect the way we think and operate to the natural world. 
And one of the, I think there's kind of layers to being able to do that. There's thinking in metaphor, which I did a lot, a lot more at the beginning of the journey of like, oh, this is in, or thinking of like a sermon illustration or a Bible study illustration. And I think that's great. And I think that is kind of a great one way to engage the lessons of nature. And then there are more ways that are actually learning from nature in a way that would change the way that we think and change Mm -hmm. the way that we're relating to an issue. And my initial relation that I wrote most about was more in this metaphorical world of going, wow, I really like birding in the winter, even though it's not the embarrassment of riches that the spring is. I like birding in the winter because I can see the birds better. Um, there, there's not as many leaves on the trees and, you know, so you can see what's there and as pretty as it is when you can pick out a bird in the spring on a big leafy tree, um, it's, it's harder to do. And it got me thinking about this rhythm of life that there's springtime when we're busy and full and life is good and how difficult it is in those times to see what I have come to refer to as like the birds in my tree. Hmm. Um, And I looked at the birds and I think transitioning more into less of the metaphor and more into instructive about all of their, their quirks and their behaviors are survival mechanisms. Like the Phoebe bobs its tail when it's, when it's looking. And that is to basically signal I'm active. I'm not a sitting duck (laughs) metaphorically. I'm not, (laughs) easy prey. I'm on to you. I see you. And so it does that habitually as kind of like a, to make itself look more alert. Mm-hmm. And we know that the colors of birds are part of, and their songs all serve this purpose. And so it was helping me think about the birds in my trees are, had been a metaphor for me of like the stuff I've got going on. I have some anxiety. I have some sensory issues. I have some things I've learned about my brain since leaving a very monolithic interpretation of the world where everything that's wrong with you is sin and everything that's right with you is a miracle because, you know, you're totally depraved. And so God somehow did something okay with you, but you don't get to be proud of that. And, you know, if you're anxious, it's because you're not trusting and you're sinful. If you are sensitive. It's because you think too highly of yourself and you, you know, there's just all sorts of ways that I think we batter people by interpreting everything as sin. And so getting to quote unquote, getting to know the birds in my trees started as, okay, I'm thankful for the times when things have gotten really difficult because my leaving the church was difficult. Um, and it, I was really lonely for a long time and, Then I would say a second difficult season was after I had kids and, um, wasn't, didn't have a really thick, deep community to have, to help raise my kids and struggled with postpartum issues. 
And so those two seasons were, I would say, like a winter time where the leaves fell off and I could see the birds clearly. And it just helped me to get to know them. Like, oh, that really is something that is just part of your tree. <laughs> and we need to get to know it. And then later realizing like all of this has been adaptive. All of these, what makes these birds that live in your tree unique has all happened for a reason. And some of it is the shape and thickness of the connections in your physical brain. And some of this is attachment wounds. And some of this is growing up hearing that you were a totally depraved, worthless sinner from age two, you know, there's just tons there. And so looking at the natural world and seeing that its diversity is functional, seeing that its diversity is protective and gives it a, the ability to survive in different um, situations has been helpful for me to learn a new language for talking about the human experience once I lost the language of um, really rigid theological, the, the Reformed tradition had given me my entire language for talking mm -hmm. about the human experience. And as I, and not just the Reformed tradition, but a really conservative expression of it, um, had given me all the language I had and I needed new language. And I think I got a lot of that from nature. Hmm. That's a beautiful story. I, I do think there is so much about birding that is just really gentle in a way the world is not really gentle. And, you know, it's nature red in tooth and claw. And sometimes I'm watching a beautiful bird and then I see a hawk drop in and destroy that bird. And I'm like, oh, that's such a beautiful hallmark moment until it wasn't. But but the gentleness of to be outdoors and to be in mm -hmm. nature and to be paying attention and to know that you can't force the birds to come. The, these are things mm -hmm. that have ministered to me so deeply to, to just be outside waiting for whatever is about to happen after seasons of being really battered around, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. not been an easy few years for any of us and, right. and your story of walking away from, from church hurt and from the, the difficulty of extricating yourself from a community you really loved, um, mm -hmm. knowing you had to leave, but also the grief of knowing you had to leave, um, and the way that birds ministered to you in, in the midst of all of that is, is really a wonderful Wonderful tale. I want to talk about your book for a few minutes. The All right. <laughs> Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, which is is not a birding book, nope. but <laughs> it is a book that's full of depth and nuance and honesty. And it is just so beautifully written. Chapters of this, I feel like could could land in the Atlantic or could land in the oh, New Yorker. Like you, you have a wonderful <laughs> if the Atlantic or New Yorker is listening, uh, I am available. <laughs> Um, but I so appreciated that this book was not a burn it all down sort of book because there mm -hmm. are those books out there. Mm -hmm. The church hurt mm -hmm. me, burn it with fire. And this isn't that story. It is a real reckoning of the pain and of the grief. And you tell these honest stories and you don't pull any punches. But at the end of the book, you still somehow find yourself within this world of faith. So mm -hmm. tell me about that arc for you. Why did you not just burn it all down with fire, Becca? Well, if you'd have talked to me in 2013, I think I might have had a slightly different 
<laughs> and I'm still like, I still have friends who will call me out on how hard I am on uh, the pastoral profession on certain things. I, I do struggle with some lack of nuance and, you know, still being a little tough on things, but And I also wanted to say that I didn't want to write a burn it all down book because I don't think that that is where that's not true to who I am or most of the people that I talked to. I mean, this book was born out of a journalistic impulse to talk to people about their stories and very few of them had a burn it all down. Some of them had an, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. And I have removed myself completely for my own sake. None of them were on the war path. Mm. And I think that in among people who have been hurt and who are deconstructing and that sort of thing, I I really don't think that the burn it all down mentality is as prevalent as the people who are worried about it feel. I think that people express anger and hurt. But then when they encounter a gentle person who's not defensive, who's not trying to say, you need to get back into church, I think most people are willing to agree there's still a lot of good reasons to be in church. I think that many, many, many people are simply wanting the freedom to say, this is not for me, and to not be judged for that. Mm -hmm. I think that combativeness leads to more combativeness. Um, But that if people are given the freedom, like I had this wonderful therapist early on and I, I was trying to stay. So I left the church where I worked uh, the denomination I had been baptized into as a baby where my parents went to church. All of my friends were in that church. It was my whole community and I had to leave. Um, because the situation had become really untenable. Um, And I had been essentially fired uh, for not being on board with some stuff. And the, at the same time, (laughs) I don't remember, I forget where I've said this, how publicly, whatever. At the same time I was leaving, I had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, And I was 28. I had not um, lost a lot yet. Mm. And so I was in this place where I knew I needed stability. And so I kept going to a church, but very like the pastor took me out to coffee and was like, what do you need? And I was like, I need you to leave me alone (laughs) and not ask me to do anything. We're not going to join the church. I'll probably leave halfway through most of your sermons. Like I can't. I am not in a great place, Mm -hmm. but I know that I need to be around people who have hope and faith Mm. because I don't. (laughs) And, but when they would start the Christian talk or when they would like want to pray for me or something, I was just like, oh, hives. And so I, after a couple of years, I went to my therapist and just said, it's my skin just crawls when the Christianese starts. Like I, I'm angry. I'm, I'm arguing with the pastor in my head. I'm angry at all of these like doe eyed people who keep coming up and asking how they can pray for me. And, you know, talking about the ways of the Lord and like, I'm sick of the words, the Lord. <laughs> I just, I was sick of everything. And she said, why don't you just not 
go for a while. And she's a Christian therapist. Um, hmm. I'm now doing a different kind of therapy, but at the time I was just going to a Christian counselor, just doing talk therapy. And she said, why don't you just not go hmm. for a while? And it was the first time anyone had suggested that as a path toward healing, that taking a break is okay. And that while she said, you're still part of the church, she said, you know, you still profess to love Jesus and want to follow Jesus's teaching. And you, you know, you believe a lot of this, what the core, you call yourself a Christian. And so in many ways, that's the criteria for being one. Um, you're not out a wolf in sheep's clothing, trying to hurt people. Like you're part of the church. Um, whether or not you spend every single Sunday with a particular group of people, whether or not you want to share in that insider language right now or that insider culture doesn't really, um, isn't the core of belonging to this community. So set yourself free. So we did, um, I just have became, I became much more irregular in going to church, took a few months off, you know, and, and then COVID has made <laughs> it even harder. And our, the church that we were kind of going to ne never going to be super involved, but going to with our kids, uh, it died during COVID and we haven't really found a home after that. But I think that easier relationship to the church that wasn't so like growing up, I wasn't allowed to participate in sports that we're going to have on Sundays. We weren't, we weren't allowed to spend the night with friends on Saturday nights. We weren't allowed to spend the night with our grandparents on Saturday nights. We spent Saturday night at home and we went to church as a family. Like everything was very mandatory. And I had to, I had to, strip away all the mandatory to figure out where the spirit was in any of it, because mm -hmm. there's really no need for the spirit when you have all these rules. <laughs> there's something to that, the, <laughs> that it tends to be the more rigid a particular faith tradition or practice or denomination is the less room there is for the Holy spirit that's described in scripture as the wind, like good luck <laughs> boxing that in. It just, right. I live here in Southern California and we had a wind advisory oh. a couple nights ago and I thought yeah. our house was going to lift off the ground. Like the wind can be terrifying. <laughs> yes. The wind is powerful. The wind does what it wants. And I think, you know, on, on the other end, people can use that as an excuse for all sorts of loosey goosey. Mm -hmm. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's happening. And, and sure. there is some middle ground of room for the work of the spirit and openness to the things of God. And, um, what, what a story. I love that. It was a Christian therapist who was like, maybe you need to take a break. What a word of grace. It was, it really was. And I'm a pastor. We want you in those pews. No, I'm kidding. I am a pastor, but I think, you know, I've had that conversation with people where, you know, maybe, maybe what you need is to, is to go for a walk on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to check in with you in a couple of months because I love you. Not because I'm like, well, mm -hmm. the time is up. Hope you're better. Come on back. Please volunteer <laughs> yeah. for all the things. Um, yeah. But our lives do go through seasons. And if, you know, Jesus is not the person who wants you to sit there so that salt can be poured on the wounds that are still healing, Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think your the disposition that you're describing, if more pastors had that 
disposition, I don't think there would be as many people needing uh, breaks. We're still people. There's still tons of wounds that can happen. But I think that the doubling down in, in defensiveness, um, which just having observed your presence in like social media and stuff and looking at your work is not, doesn't seem to be your approach, <laughs> but the defensiveness about anyone who's leaving is now is going to like lead an exodus. Like there's a lot of anxiety about that. Yeah. But honestly, if an exodus happens, then maybe what we need to do is reflect on ourselves as the church, not on those bad, those quote, these are air quotes, those bad people <laughs> who are leaving. And and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a woman pastor, so clearly I have all sorts of issues anyway. Um, <laughs> but I think that that defensiveness and that fear is not of God. I, I don't see Jesus ever acting out of fear or leading out of fear or guiding out of fear. And, and my posture toward it all is that the gospel is inherently invitational. The, the word of the gospel is come and see, not sit there and do what you're told, not don't ever step out of line, but come and see. And when you come and mm-hmm. see the wonder and the goodness and the depth and the joy, that is its own allure. You know, our, our, our senior pastor, his name is Jackson. He talks about building wells and not fences. And I think mm-hmm. that's it. If there's, if there's living water here and it's open to anyone, people can come and drink it. But if it's like, here's the fence, stay inside the fence. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to try to get out. I have kids. That's what they do. Don't touch that. And they're like, sweet, I'm going to touch that. It's human nature. Cause we are all deeply depraved. You know, you're a worm, yeah. but be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But don't be aware of how good you're getting worm don't don't be an arrogant worm no arrogant worms oh my gosh (laughs) and I let but that come and see mentality when I got into the master naturalist program that felt so much more like come and see like go explore the natural world it's out there waiting. Like the birds are not forcing them. Well, I have some birds that kind of force themselves. The on mocking you. birds are in your face. <laughs> yeah. And we have several, we're in central Texas. The mockingbird is literally the state bird and they are present. And we have, we have some owls. I know you love owls and I do too. We have one that decided like the tree right by my window was going to be his like place to to hoot every night. And I was like, wow, that's so loud. Um, but I do love him anyway. I don't, will never begrudge the neighborhood barred owl. You're not going to um, get a slingshot. No. <laughs> good. Good. Maybe for the mockingbird. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Well, it's almost bird. mating season. Good luck to you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, anyway, the birds are not, nature is not forcing itself on us. It's not saying, come here. You have to interact this way. You have to. Nature's doing nature's thing and the goodness is there to be observed. And the more you learn, the more interesting it is. I, and I'm, I've been more influenced by like indigenous theologians, um, by father Richard Rohr, by people who are taking a different look at the fact that nature operates like that. Isn't just a nice alternative to the way the church works, but the, the way God relates to nature, like God's God created the world in the, in our theology, we say that God created the world 
just like God created humans. And yes, there's a special relationship there. There's an image, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't intentionality and presence and a relationship with nature. Mm. And so it's okay to learn from that and see a, see the way that nature interacts with itself and with us as a sacred instructional thing. And that's been very helpful for me rebuilding. Cause there's the, you know, I, the whole deconstruction reconstruction conversation, I'm a big fan of reconstructing. I don't think it can be this prescriptive come back to exactly the place you left, but now you feel even better about it because you, I think reconstruction usually looks a little different. You are a little different on the other side. Um, And, but I also think that staying in a deconstructive place for a lot of people is really um, lonely and isolating and, um, I don't, I didn't want to stay there. I wanted to come to a place of, of more harmony internally and with people. I wanted to be able to talk about spiritual things without it being this kind of fraught, frustrating. I have a hard time as a, as a word person, I have a hard time and I can't find the words. <laughs> And so I wanted to have words. I wanted to have ritual. I wanted to have connection. And um, actually it has been those theologies that have given me more of what I would consider my current uh, like spiritual practice. Hmm. So being, being outside and, you know, watching moving water as a way of being instructed in how God is moving and and looking at trees and the way that they grow and the way that what dictates what branch goes where like meditating on that kind of stuff. And then, and birding was a lot of it that birding mandates that you be still and that you just listen. I was so amazed when I went out with birders who could bird by ear. I, I still am not great at that. Um, and could pick out in this cacophony, this like, to me, what it sounds like, oh my gosh, I can't tell where one ends and the other begins. They could pick out every single one and it was just beautiful. And I so admire that, but they're so still when they do it and they can so get down to hearing just one thing. Like to, in order to hear one golden cheeked warbler, which has like a, I forget the exact territory, radius of their territory, but to know like, okay, I heard that one there. So the next one I hear should be this far away. Um, to be able to do that, you have to be able to block out a lot of other stuff. You can't be listening to the cars on the road and the, you know, the bugs moving in the grass or whatever. You have to really be able to focus. So all of all of that and looking at the contentment of nature in having what it needs, the the fact that it doesn't take more than it needs, um, like the give us this day our daily bread takes on a whole new meaning when you look at a tree that only takes from the soil what it needs to grow and, you know, produce the leaves. And 
all of that to me has become very beautiful and very healing because it's giving back words and shape and allowing me to go back to scripture, which I love and spent a lot of time memorizing and I don't want to just have to scrap it. <laughs> um, but seeing that the ancient Hebrews would have had a pretty uh, intuitive relationship with nature. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have, like, they were walking around in the wilderness and looking at G the way Jesus talks about nature, the way the Psalms talk about nature, the way, and then seeing Paul and the apostles through a little more mystical lens. And, you know, the Paul, I hated Paul, hated Paul coming out of a Reformed tradition and have grown to love Paul seeing opening up to a more, Paul is a more spiritual teacher. Hmm. So all of that has been restorative and helped with a reconstruction that, I mean, I would still call myself a Christian very much. Um, and I've joked that my deconstruction hasn't led me to stop calling myself a Christian, but it's probably changed the number of people who would agree with me. <laughs> You know, I know that there are people who are like, nope, that's out of bounds. It's an, or, you know, you've, you've left orthodoxy. But I was looking at the curly branches. We have live oak trees um, in our yard, which is why we have so many birds and they grow how they grow. Hmm. You know, the little branches are just, and I look at my daughter's wild curly hair that this morning is picture day. And I said, I just need to tame it a little bit. She goes, it can't be tamed, mom. <laughs> You're right. And there's something beautiful and instructive about that. Mm. It's the wind. It's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yes, just like that. I really appreciated your note that the process of deconstruction can be very lonely because I do think people, you know, and I hear it and it's on social media and I hear it within the church community that, oh, these people who are deconstructing and there's kind of this, this negative attitude toward it and not this this compassion that people don't usually decide to do this out of a, a hatred or out of a, I'm mad at you. You know, often there is anger that goes with it, but this process of leaving everything you've loved and leaving your, your home country in a way is very painful and very lonely. And often what helps in the work of reconstruction, you know, people who kind of reach this end of this cul-de-sac and decide to turn around and, and they're different and the world is different, but they want to walk back towards something what helps that is the the grace and curiosity and kindness of tell me about this journey for you and hearing people's pain without reacting to it, without feeling like they're doing it against you and against Jesus. And we see these journeys, they're all over scripture. There is almost not a single figure in scripture who at some point is not taking some journey away and then trying to find their way back. And God's response is not sit over there and think about what you did. God's response is open arms and wide mm. embrace. And, you know, the, the prodigal son coming back from the far country and he's different now. Mm -hmm. and the father is in the, the, you know, the older brother is still mad, but there, there's a, there's a journey yeah. there. And so we think when we can face one another with compassion and not anger and not defensiveness and not, how dare you do this to me? People who are deconstructing are not doing anything personal to mm -hmm. you. You know, there's a, there's a journey there. And 
Yeah. I hear so much of the Psalms in your language about the tree that's growing and the water that's rushing. And I grew up in a, in a very evangelical household. And, and I think it's, it's tricky with kids and Sunday school and things because kids are really binary thinkers. And so mm-hmm. it's yes or no, it's this or that, you know, we have a six-year-old, he's in kindergarten and he's always like, is it a good guy or a bad guy? And I'm like, well, yeah, oh, it's yeah. complicated. There's nuance. <laughs> and he's like, just answer the question. And, and so we grow into nuance. We grow yeah. up into nuance. And, and so I think the Psalms are such a beautiful book for that because they don't say do this mm-hmm. and do that mm-hmm. and yes and no. Instead, they say there's a tree and it's planted by the water and it grows deep roots. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. but what does that mean? And God is like, yeah. I don't know, sit with that for a couple decades and then maybe you'll Your know. Your spirit will know. <laughs> yes. yes. I love, yes. And I think that the idea of of looking at a spiritual journey as being a motif through scripture is really valuable and could could help a lot of people. And also looking at how a lot of times people were sent away from the crowd for reformation purposes. Mm-hmm. Like you have a lot of churches where there's kind of a babble situation going on and to be sent away, like in some senses, the prophets were deconstructors, you know, the, they are the people who are outside enough who came from the community, you know, they're Hebrews or whatever. Most of them, I think, <laughs> um, came from the community, chose to be separate or were called to be separate in order to say, hey, this is going astray. And people what? loved it. People received that message very graciously. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, Tell me again yes. about how terrible I am. I love you, Jeremiah. Yes. You're the best. Can you be our king? Um, <laughs> that's why there was prophets and kings. Right. Rarely the same people. Because the prophets were in the bottom of a well. Yeah. Exactly. In the den. Um, but earlier you said the the best thing about like when if you were to have an exodus from your church, you might look at each other and be like, Hmm, are we running people off? (laughs) And, and I had a hilarious interaction with a friend who gave the book to his pastor and the pastor was like, well, I'm not really comfortable with the title. And I was like, I said, my husband's an architect. And I said, imagine seeing the title of an article in the New Yorker. And it said, how architecture is failing us. Buildings are killing people. Yeah. Would you not devour that article in hopes to not be the next architect who kills people? (laughs) And as a journalist, I will read anything that's like what journalism is getting wrong. How I'm part of the Solutions Journalism Network, which is totally devoted to trying to rectify and and repair some of the damage that journalism has done in marginalized communities Mm -hmm. or like in the rifts that are so big in our society. I'm all about, Hey, there's pain. If there's a way to, to ease this suffering, if there's a way to seek repair, let's do it. And only, maybe not only, I haven't like exhaustively says, but very It is a hallmark and distinctive, we'll say that, it's a distinctive of the church to not be open to that, 
to to be defensive against that and to take this posture that well the church can't let you down because it's not a product or a consumer it's and i'm just going look at your budget man like you have this massive budget some of them some of them i realize have tiny budgets but you have a budget that is reflective of your values that is being spent doing something other than gathering together in houses to share meals and talk, which means you have built something, you know, like the church as an institution has made a lot of choices and does involve hierarchy and power and all of that stuff that to claim this is God's institution and therefore it can't screw up is bonkers. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but that protectiveness comes from this, like people who are leaving, are just consumeristic and want the church to serve them. They don't want to serve the church. And I've tried to run a volunteer ministry. Like I was the children's director at a church. It is hard. I I was very frustrated and I felt like my view of my church family was, was compromised because I could see how, um, unwilling people were to give their time. I get that. But that is different than the people who, like, if you look at the major voices of deconstruction, the Rachel Held Evans, I would count like Liz Lins among them. They've gone and tried to start their own churches. They've loved the church so much that they're trying to, to get it right. No one does that if they are just there for an easy feel good Mm. or whatever. I, I don't, I think the church is having a lot of the church in general, the big voices in evangelicalism, the gospel coalition, those guys are having a lot of more unforced errors right now. It's like deconstruction's gaining a lot of, is having a lot of talk right now. There's a whole lot of people offering up a lot of really articulate, really, helpful information and giving opening the door to you to like enter a season of healing and restoration and you're gonna whiff (laughs) i don't understand i i do a little church podcast for for our church and i talked to an er doctor early on in the pandemic and you know he's a faithful christian and and he was just like i just like this one isn't hard like we can get this one right this one isn't hard and he's like he was just baffled you know like we're he's like i'm a christian i'm not getting money from pharmaceutical companies for trying to fake a pan he's like this isn't hard like you know i understand <laughs> yeah. you're not believing the government or not believing whoever but like when christian doctors are standing in front of you saying please please stay six feet apart. We want you alive. And people are like faith over fear. He's like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. And, and it does often feel like this one isn't hard, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. This one isn't hard. Love your neighbors. This one isn't hard. Don't be a jerk on social media. This one isn't hard, but over and over again, these unforced errors. And I think that the thing that gives me hope in the midst of all of it is that, that God lets us do this and, mm-hmm. and hasn't, you know, burned, burned the whole thing with fire. There's this like, okay, yeah. 
I'm going to still plant these trees and I'm going to still send these birds. And even as you're all down there tearing yourselves apart, maybe if you look out the window, you'll notice that the sun is setting and it's beautiful and this will never happen mm-hmm. again. And maybe that will do something in your soul. And, and you know, as someone who who's a professional church person to, to wake up every day and say, okay, we're, we're going to try again. We're going to try yeah. again and we're going to get a lot of it wrong and hopefully we're going to get some of it right. And that at the end of the day, someone has seen the wonder that exists because of who God is. Um, but it weirdly gives me hope that we're so unbelievably bad at all this. And at the end of the day, God sends more more sparrows. Yeah. What, what is giving you hope, Becca, in the midst of this journey of rebuilding? Yeah. Um, to be honest, the... I was the stories I am hearing as people read the book. Um, mm. I get emails, DMs, people stopping by at book signings to tell me their story, both the stories that are in the book and reader stories. Um, people are, it gives me hope that they are finding something. Mm. It's kind of that God is still sending sparrows and a chance to enjoy the world, but also that God is meeting people in new ways. And I am so encouraged by the stories. I had one person stop by a book signing who um, was so fearful when they came out to their parents, knowing their parents' religious beliefs and the the parents chose relationship and love and are working with their church about being more affirming. And I just went, okay, that is a beautiful thing. That gives me hope because it gives me hope when I do meet pastors who are interested in the stories that hurt people tell. It gives me hope when the conversation is productive. And I do think that that's happening enough. You know, the whole world isn't a bird. We don't go outside and it's just birds, birds, birds. You know, like you said, sometimes the hawk swoops in. That's one of the first birds my kids ever saw was a hawk devouring something on the side of the road um, in our front yard. And that, that, but there are enough, there are enough quiet moments, there's enough healing, there's enough stories of finding a community, finding healing, finding the spirit or God in the aftermath that I um, I have a lot of hope because exactly Mm -hmm. what you said, I don't think if the whole plan was that God was just going to wait for us to get it right, I just don't think we would have gotten to the year 2023 yet. I I don't think that, (laughs) I, I think there's a long history of things we've gotten even worse, gotten even more wrong. Thousand thousand percent. I think there's, there's really something to that. And, and this idea that the church is infallible because it comes from God, like, no, the church is comprised of people. And let me tell you how many times during the course of a week, I'm like, oh, I had that person on my call sheet because they just had surgery and I forgot, you know, just Uh little tiny human errors, not to mention the systemic things that we're all like, you know, we don't have a problem with racism. And you're like, look around, there's, you know, (laughs) this is the story of America. Um, It's, 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 it's so difficult and we all have such blind spots and yet 
God is, God is doing the work. And there are these stories of hope and transformation and listening and kindness and nuance. And, um, it gives me hope when I'm not mired in despair. It's a, it's a balance. It's a, (laughs) yes, yes. (laughs) The center journey. (laughs) Yeah. Hope is a forward looking thing. The the reality of, of, uh, the present is also with us. (laughs) Totally. It is a, it is a nuanced, it is a nuanced journey for sure. Well, Becca, tell me about your favorite bird for, for those Mm. of you who aren't birders with a capital B, uh, you may not know that the American Birding Association unveils a new bird of the year every year. 2022 was the burrowing owl. They live stream this. I was watching it with my 10 year old who was like, mom, you have got to be kidding me. And I'm like, this is very exciting. We're going to find the bird of the year. And he's like, it's not like the Grammys. Like, do they win something? Like, this is ridiculous. Your favorite bird is the ABA bird of the year. Tell me about your favorite bird and what makes it your favorite bird and that you loved it before it was cool, before it was famous as the bird of the year. Yes. So the belted kingfisher. Yay. I fell in, I saw my first belted kingfisher at Mitchell Lake on uh, one of my early outings. I don't know if it was the first one, but uh, one of my first trips there. And I was just struck by its it has a very unique silhouette. Like, and some people I've heard, they they feel like it almost looks disproportion, oddly proportioned because it has like a compact little body and a giant head. But it reminds me of a Miyazaki cartoon in some ways. I don't know, like Totoro and um, Ponyo and those cartoons. There's always interestingly proportioned creatures and the kingfisher to me looks like it belongs in that world. And they're sort of just humble, sturdy, hang out around the edge of the lake, do their deal. And they're not flashy, but there was something to me that was just so striking about, I mean, the silhouette was what I fell in love with. I just thought they were just the quirkiest, most, but noble looking. And the fact that in, as I watched him, he just hopped from branch to branch around the outside of the pond, would occasionally catch a little something here or there. But I thought it's distinctive, but understated enough that like, this is, this is the kind of bird I would want to (laughs) be. Hmm. Like it's its own thing. A kingfisher, they're very hard to confuse with other birds. So it was easy to spot. That was a big, big thing. But they're, um, yeah, so they're distinctive, but they're not flashy. And that's why Hmm. I love them. I love that. I, in, in watching this unveiling with my son who lost interest and wandered off eventually, they, uh-huh. they told me something I didn't know about the belted kingfisher, which in so many species of birds, the male is more colorful, you know, the male mm-hmm. cardinal is bright red and the, the female right. is more muted. And, um, but with the kingfisher, the, the belt, which is what gives it its name, only the females have the belt. So they're this kind of bluish grayish bird with this rusty right. orange belt, but only the females have this rusty orange belt. So there's something yes. special and unique about that, that the, the girl true. is the one who puts it's on the accessories. <laughs> the necklace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, um, I like, I think that there's something to be said for like 
that <laughs> I like the color combination. There's a like um kind of a maturity almost about the birds. Like they look like they just kind of got dressed up with a bit of flash, but nothing like they're, I, I don't know. It just contributes to this whole distinctive understated feeling that they give me. They're, they're <laughs> yes, very I, classy. Yeah. It's a classy bird with weird proportions. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I will, I will link to the, uh, the ABA, uh, bird of the year. They, they commission a portrait every year. So there's a beautiful portrait mm. of the, of the lady Kingfisher. They, they entitled the portrait queen Fisher. So I'll link to that in the show oh, notes so it. you can all appreciate the, the queen Fisher in her, in her glory. That is a good yes. choice, Becca. Thank every you. time someone I... <laughs> sends me their favorite bird, I'm like, Oh, Oh, that's my favorite too. They're all my favorite. I love yeah, them all. My, I have a list of like 10 that I'm just like, oh, that one too. But the kingfisher always comes out on top. Which one is your favorite <laughs> Spots child? two through 10 are totally in flux always. <laughs> totally, totally. It depends on what you saw this morning. I, I feel yeah, like exactly. Well, Becca, tell me where people can find you, where people can find this book, where we can get mm-hmm. connected and learn all about your birding. <laughs> um, now there's pressure. I need to go get some more blog posts up on birding. <laughs> I think they're all pretty far down now that life's been taken over by book writing. Um, you can go to my website, BeccaMcNeil.com. You can buy the book anywhere that you buy books. It's on Bookshop. It's on Amazon. It's I send people to the Erdman's publishing website. Buying direct from the publisher is always great. Um, if you feel squeamish about <laughs> the economic behavior of the middleman. Um, Barnes & Noble. Anywhere you, anywhere you buy books, you can get it. And... Uh, my website has a link, obviously, to all of that and my other writing. And soon there will be a page with all of the different pods. So this episode, once it airs and everything will go up on a podcast page. Awesome. Well, thank you for for writing the book, for writing it so beautifully and for being a voice for those who are in that world, somewhere between deconstruction and reconstruction and finding the path. You're a you're a good spokesperson for that oh. for that movement and your graciousness. Thank you. I'd say you're a good spokesperson for the church people. <laughs> I speak for the birds, for the birds have no tongues. <laughs> so, yes. From the Lorax. Yes. The birds yeah. do have tongues, though. They make they plenty do. of noise. Lorax, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Becca, thank you for your time. I will link to all of those uh, those resources that Becca mentioned in the show notes, and you can connect with her also on social media. I will link to that as well. Becca McNeil, her book is Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. Go to Mitchell Lake in Texas and see all the birds. Check out the belted kingfisher on her behalf. And Becca, thank you for your time today. Courtney, thank you. This was so much fun. (laughs) The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. What is going to your soul? Yes, it does.